Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, how are you today? Not too bad. How are you, Justin? Good. Did you like my intro? I was kind of trying to make it like subdued. It's maybe a little weird, but it could grow on us. <laughs> listener feedback. Uh, we'll, we'll respond based on listener feedback. Well, I try and make it a little different every time, so... Hopefully that wasn't too odd, but nonetheless, Matt, um, something that you mentioned earlier, and I thought it'd be a good topic, uh, talking about bridging theory and not bridge as in the card game, but bridging as in bridging the formation, right? That's correct. Okay. Would you please describe bridging theory for all the, uh, faithful listeners out there? Sure. Um, I, I guess part of my reason for interest is everybody seems to try and make this one really complicated and, um, I could. I hope to not do that, just although I think there's probably a lot of money to be made in continually, you know, making it sound more complicated than it needs to be. But, yeah. uh, you know, basically the idea is what is it, what particle blend is going to seal a formation? So let's say we have a sandstone, the pore spaces, or even a carbonate, we have like a fracture, a fracture network. Um, what, how do, how is material going to pack efficiently across that or, or in that tunnel or, or void space? Mm -hmm. Uh, so I get a good thin filter cake. Um, and this is, you know, of particular interest in high overbalance areas where we want to seal as quickly as possible and avoid stuck pipe, uh, in reservoir drilling fluid and fluid loss control pill applications. This can be quite useful. Um, but there's a number of confusing theories and I feel like, um, uh, I guess it would be helpful to run through some of those and then kind of explain how you test. Yeah. Um, and then realize that, you know, in the oil field, we do a lot of guessing, but we give it names. Right, right. So when it comes to bridging theory, if we're drilling along and we start losing return and you start applying different LCM, is what's stopping the fluid from continuously invading bridging theory? Or is bridging theory a, a certain type of method to stop loss circulation? So once we induce losses, I think pretty much you're more in the guess and check method. Um, but when we know in advance what a formation is like, we might be able to say, hey, let's carry this background material, and then we can offer up some way to bridge and seal that part of the formation. Um, so the theories themselves, typically one would argue, or, or my argument is, I don't care which theory you use because ultimately you're going to test it anyways. So it might take you more test iterations if you don't use, a, you know, the right one. But at the end of the day, your success criteria is based off of a test. So no matter how smart you think you are using some of these values, you're, you're going to check them. And if you're way off, you'll tweak it. Gotcha. Um, this maybe gives you some steps to do it. But I think, uh, you know, I know people have heard some of these before, and I, I'd like to explain them a little bit. Um, and then, you know, maybe explain why they it may not be as complicated as, as they can come across. Okay. So uh, there's something, a term that I've heard you throw around is called Abrams theory. Mm -hmm. And so uh, would you mind just kind of going back? Cause I think that's, that goes back quite a ways. Doesn't it? Yeah. So Abrams or a lot of people call it the one thirds bridging rule. 
okay. was kind of the very first. Uh, there are some that preceded this. There's a guy named Coberly who was doing a lot of stuff in like the 20s, but Abrams was the first when we were when I think the oil field knew enough about what was going on and knew they needed to manage particle size distribution to seal something. And Abrams did a study and, and basically came up with the idea that the particles you had to to efficiently pack and seal, basically your median uh, your, your particles need to be greater than or equal to one third the size of the median pore size of the formation. Hmm. Um, and so that was kind of where everything started. But I, I think the other thing that we still adhere to today is he observed that to get good sealing, you also needed at least 5% by volume solids. So let's say you're drilling with brine and you want to bridge and seal. It kind of tells you you need to carry a pretty high concentration, which is why it may make more sense to sweep, pump sweeps or that sort of thing. Right. Um, before you're going to get an effective seal because you don't have enough particles across that. Um, so that's Abrams. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, and then that's, so that's just, when you talk about that, that's just a theory of, of how to properly apply certain materials? Yes. Right. So okay. what size, you know, different size graphite, calcium carbonate, okay. you know, nutshells, the, the usual suspects when it comes to lost circulation. Right. So... Continuing on, and, and this is something, while we made some notes here, you mentioned uh, like ideal packing and, and something to do with paint. And I actually, it's funny, I was talking to a gentleman yesterday, and I didn't know this, but a lot of folks that are in the mud world um, at some point in time read a lot of paint patents because a lot of our technology and, and maybe materials come from the paint world. And may, does yeah. that some make sense with what we're talking about here? So uh, this in particular came from from paint and basically kind of coverage, but think of on like a very small scale, you know, I'm trying to cover something that's porous, right? Yeah. Um, I think they had a lot more control and it was a much smaller scale, but the original paper's in French and I do not speak French. Maybe <laughs> you could read French? it. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe you could read it. A little bit. Uh, friend to the north. You're right. Uh, but um, so, so it was really applied to drilling fluids in about 2000. Um, and the whole idea was that, that, uh, your cumulative particle size was graphed up against the square root of your particle diameter and basically gave you a, a um, this is also called the square root rule, but it basically gives you a line. Um, okay. so a lot of times what you would do is, is in the, in the most basic, you would take the maximum pore size, take the square root of it, and that would be like your D 90. And then you just draw a line down to zero and try and get all your particles to match up to that line. Oh, wow. um, so it. And, and the, the, the principle behind this is that if I have, let's say I have, you know, three large spheres, let's say three basketballs next to each other, yeah. there's going to be, there's still going to be flow area around that. So now I need three, you know, some soccer balls to pack in there. And then there's going to be space between those. And so Makes I'm going to use baseballs. And so you go smaller and smaller. And that's that square root gets get tinier and tinier. Mm, okay. um, Interesting. So that's, that's where that goes. Um, okay. And then, uh, you know, it, I think there is some sort of a competition to say, hey, I've got a proprietary bridging method that works better than the other guys. Um, not to knock any of these other ones, but um, there are a few others that have come out more recently that are sort of, um, I would say, like, takeoffs of this, and I can't really tell what what the angle was, but but um, the the Vickers one is is the last one that I think comes up in conversation. and And Vickers' criticism of these others is, it doesn't account for, you know, heterogeneous pore sizing. Okay. It assumes that you've just got a lot of consistently large pores, okay. and we just try and seal the biggest ones. Um, I think that's fine. However, his argument would be, no, you actually need to adjust the blends in a fairly elaborate way. So, like, the D90 of your particle size distribution being, 
when I say D90, 90% of the particles are this size or less. Right. Needs to be the largest pore size. Then the D75 needs to be less than two-thirds the size of the largest pore throat. Right. The D50 is plus or minus one-third of the mean pore throat. And yes, I am reading this off a piece of paper. <laughs> the D25 needs to be one-seventh of the mean pore throat. And then the D10 needs to be greater than the smallest pore throat. And the argument is, if I have all these different pore sizes, I can't just forget about the smaller guys. The ideal packing theory would say, well, if I get the big ones, which are the most prolific, um, you know, are going to have the highest flow, then mm. everything that's smaller than that will take care of the other stuff. Yeah. Um, but these are, you know, the, this is kind of some of the evolution or, or some of the different uh, theories out there. And so you would take this, a lot of them, there's computer equations to model this. You can do it in Excel. Yeah. But you would basically say, okay, these are my pore sizes. Um, these are the par- products I have available. What ratios do I blend them to match a target based upon one of these theories? Um, and so that's where we get, you know, if you're using calcium carbonate, somebody says to add two different size sacks, and you're like, why? Right. Um, it's basically they're, they're trying to get closer to that, that ideal blend and maintain it. Gotcha. So, uh, kind of moving on with regards to pore size, how do you categorize different pore size and how do we actually determine that? So, uh, you know, it's funny cause a lot of stuff we do, it's, it's a lot more guesswork, but you know, the better information you can get, um, my favorite is what's called a thin section. And it's basically someone has taken a core sample of the rock mm-hmm. and ground it down to two dimensions on a microscope slide. Mm. And a geologist will look at it <clears throat> And they, they will say, okay, here, you, you actually inject uh, like a latex in the void. So typically the, the background is blue. So you can very easily see the pore sizes. Interesting. And they'll tell you the maximum common size. They'll tell you a few things. And, and you could take this even further with software, which can detect those voids and do what's called petrographic image analysis, which where the computer will actually give you a graph of that distribution. Which is obviously quite a bit more accurate, I would imagine. Yes, I think the only trick is that with a, when a geologist looks at a thin section, sometimes they can see artifacts. Oh. For example, like the rock wasn't handled properly, and they can say this moved or something like that that might be a little bit misleading. I, I mean, I was actually working on a, a job where it had very, very unconsolidated sand, and it was very apparent that, well, it wasn't very apparent to me, but once he pointed it out, the, the geologist said, look, you can't use this because um, these, these sand grains weren't compacted enough and they moved when they were handled. And so the pore sizes I'm telling you are much smaller than what's actually there. Hmm. And so we had to go by other data. Um, so, you know, I consider some of the, the less good, if you will. Uh, um, so mercury intrusion uh, is, is one that um, to Vickers really drove off of because it does give you a distribution. But in, in essence, what it is, you take a rock and you inject mercury into it. And there's a certain back pressure that's applied. There's a certain surface tension okay. that mercury has. Okay. So yeah. when I push it in, and I mean, we go, we go all the way up to, you know, 30,000 PSI. Like, they push it in. You can basically use an equation and back calculate, you know, what, with that surface tension, what it was able to invade in at those pressures wow. relative to how far it went. The thing is, because it depends on surface tension, it sometimes misses your largest pore sizes, which... The ideal packing theory guys would argue are the biggest, most prolific, most important ones to pay attention to. Right. So that's the knock on mercury. Um, And then you can use the permeability. Basically, I pump gas, use an equation to figure out relative to my flow rate and my pressure, what is the permeability. 
Um, I choose the maximum. A lot of times I'll take the maximum of that, take the square root of that, and calculate that as my average pore size. Wow. So you're using a mathematical interpretation. So once again, I'm still a bigger fan of that thin section analysis. We can also use SEM or scanning electron microscopy, which you can see the void spaces, but the problem is it looks 3D. So when you're trying to see on basically a 2D plane what a pore size is in a rock, you've got to kind of do some fudging. And, and so, you know, people like this one less. And then, you know, the last and, and dirtiest is when I can't get anything else, sometimes I can get the particle size distribution of the formation material itself. Um, and there's a lot of mathematical interpretation to say, well, if you have this distribution, they likely laid on top of each other in a geologic environment like this, right. and therefore the pore spaces are probably this. But you're making an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation. <laughs> and so this, th but those are kind of the choices you have to give you your theoretical pore size. Okay. You put that in your model, you get your distribution, you create up your mud, um, and then my argument is no, no, th no matter what the theory you're using, you still got to test it. Right. So how do we test it? Um, well, that's kind of disappointing, but, um, <laughs> if you think of the HPHT that we run on paper, you yep. can actually get a modified one that has a ceramic disc. It's the same ones that go in, in the PPT mm. test, you know, the high pressure permeability plugging test. Yeah. Um, uh, and they're supposed to be different sizes, but let me tell you about those sizes. Uh, so we actually had uh, at my old job, we had our geologists run thin sections on the discs. Okay. And they were all over the place. Like, I think the, the, some of the smallest sizes were basically the same. Um, where they're getting these disks is actually from water filtration, which doesn't exactly have a strict QC. It's basically pump the water through and get some stuff out. Yeah. And then they cut this stuff from that, that filter material into disk shapes and sell it to us at ridiculously high markup. Of course. Um, but uh, the API tried to come in and, and say, look, we just need to figure out a standard for these sizes. So let's call it a 10 micron disc. Let's call it, you know, what have you. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if I should share this whole story, but um, the person <laughs> who was the most opinionated on this, this particular issue with the artifacts and the shortcomings um, is a very wonderful and brilliant person who mentored me and I have tremendous respect for. But he also has a fairly short attention span and isn't very interested in showing up to meetings. So <laughs> okay. he wasn't there when this decision was made. Um, and so it's one of those always a quandary because I know the discs aren't very accurate at all. They're, I mean, they're kind of in the ballpark, but they'll have, you know, you'll have a, a disc that says 10 microns, then you'll see a hundred micron hole in the side of it. You're oh, like, wow. well, that's, that's not very good. <laughs> what? Um, but you know what? We've been making, you know, million dollar decisions off this stuff so, and, you know, gotten away with it for this long. But typically we'll measure fluid loss on this. And my, you know, the knock on it is that, um, you know, okay, I'm in a static environment. Um, there's, you can get a dynamic little paddle thing to apply shear. Yeah. Right. But, you know, gravity is a factor here, how long you run the test for. Um, and we know that filter cake is nothing like that. Um, you know, some of the folks on bridging theory will say, oh, we need to, we need to run a much higher, if we run a higher concentration of solids, then we might, you know, have a much thicker filter cake and we can't have that. But if you bang pipe against it and pump on it, it probably won't be that thick. It won't be as thick as what you're seeing in the lab. 
Right. And so there are so many artifacts and even applying, you know, dynamic circulation. Let's say you have a little paddle in there, which some of these dynamic uh, HPHTs have. You set it at a different stir rate. It's, it's not right up on the cake. But if it, if it, in essence, provides a relative shear rate, um, you'll get a thinner filter cake, but it may pack differently. And yet oh, yeah. everybody's basing all of their theories off these static conditions. Right. Um, so um, remember, we're, we sound really smart when we go through all these theories, but at the end of the day, um, we've got to test these with somewhat unsophisticated equipment, and we're fairly limited in, in how much we can learn from actual application other than, okay, um, this is a little different than what we expected. Right. Um, or no, you know, the well produced fine and we didn't have damage, so it must have been okay. Yep. Um, clearly the margin of error is wide. Um, we don't we we don't know if we don't care about it at all, we can create some serious problems. Sure. You know. But um I think we're now sort of in this level where the knowledge base is pretty strong. Mm. And if we kind of go with some good practices um and do our tests and check everything, um Odds are we've taken out the stuff that really nailed us in the past. Right. Um, and then, it, you know, the other curveball I love is you do all this theory. And, I mean, I've done this for reservoir drilling fluid applications where we probably spent sixty or $70,000 at this point on return perm testing, all this design work, all that kind of thing. And then we're told, oh, the, the overbalance pressure. So, you know, the reservoir pressure is actually much lower than we thought. So we're really looking at like 1,500 PSI, 2,000 PSI overbalance. <laughs> so I've been using my bridging theory, and what I find is I actually have to go way, way bigger, or that material will all compact together, and um, it won't. It, it, one, it, it doesn't seem to to uh, seal as tightly, right. um, but it also won't flow back, and, and that sort of thing. So I have wow. to go with huge particles, and so at some point when you get into those really high overbalance situations, you're you're sort of sandbagging it. Right. Um, so it's just kind of a funny. Um, it's funny. Like I, I feel like people use these bridging theories. Oh, well, are you using Abrams or Vickers? Is that the, you know, is that the ideal packing theory? And it's like, they're very interesting. I can put pretty graphs on a computer. Um, I think they save you test iterations, Like There is something to them for sure. Yeah. Um, but when we get in one is better than the other, I sort of start to take issue with that. Sure. Um, I grew up under the ideal packing theory school. And so it's what I continue to use. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I welcome, you know, if somebody comes up with something new and it's straightforward and seems to work, I'll, I'll go to that. Right. Um, so to, to kind of tie it all together, um, we use a lot of these methodologies and a lot of lab work, uh, to design either single products, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then, uh, different, you know, fluid systems and stuff like that. So ultimately the end result is coming up with a with a once a sack of product that was designed based off all the data that you collect in hopes that when we pump it through the well bore, it's supposed to do its job. Yes. And a great example of that, I'm, I'm kind of glad you sort of bring it home. Um, <laughs> you know, as, as a lab rat, sometimes I think I, I can get lost in that, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we're actually trying to optimize blends. Uh, you know, for example, um, we had a new product come out called micro strain mm-hmm. and the idea behind, you know, part of it was, that uh, we need this distribution where we're testing fluid loss across a wide, wide range from like paper up to, you know, 200 micron fractures, you know, kind of trying to figure out how to seal all this stuff effectively. Um, And you need a broad distribution. 
uh, to cover that. And so it took a fair amount of, of guessing and checking. But one of the other things that we wanted to see was we want to see really low spurt loss. Okay. And one thing to tighten that up is we introduced um, a, you know, submicron a la, you know, nanomaterial, if you want to go into unit sets, um, <laughs> okay. that basically under that ideal packing theory concept, I have these particles packing together and the very last ones, you know, to kind of bind and seal it all together was something smaller than what was already there. Oh, and okay. so that was, that was part of it. I, I think that material also gives it some compressive strength and does a few other tricks that, you know, that's what we're strengthening. Refer to that episode. Yeah. But, um, but on the, on the packing side of things, that was, uh, that was the concept. Very cool. No, there's there's certainly a lot of thought and science that goes into designing products, and so hopefully we uh, we helped uh, you know build some clarity um, with the whole bridging theory. And if anyone out there has any more questions, obviously this was a little more technical heavy, but a lot of people appreciate it and, and are very interested in these types of topics. So, uh, but if you have any feedback, um, you know, please hit us up on LinkedIn or uh, the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. Um, Matt, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we close out, buddy? I think, you know, if, if you're ever challenged with any of these, go back and read the papers. It's kind of interesting. Like, okay. you know, one sort of knocks the other. But um, <laughs> right. also the, re- the papers they reference, you can kind of sort of start seeing this narrative of, of you know, why people felt a certain way. And um, I don't know if it'll confuse you more or give you more guidance. But uh, from my perspective, that's kind of how I learned these because I was really intimidated by this stuff at first. Sure. Um, and then when I read about it, I was like, okay, this isn't as... <laughs> like crazy I, I don't need a phd and a supercomputer to know what's going on here <laughs> right so that was my goal is to try and clarify it from that perspective but cool but if you need to do more research there's definitely definitely plenty of literature out there awesome matt well thank you for your super brain power because i certainly could have not explained all of this so uh with that being said everyone out there please like it share it ask us some questions and until next time keep calm and drill on Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.